Good morning. Great to see all of you here with us this morning. Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and open up to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4 is where we're going to be at today. This is the, the last chapter in this small book in the Old Testament called Ruth. And the last several weeks we've been going through it. And so if you are new here, first of all, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're worshiping Christ with us. Uh, I would encourage you, if you've missed the last several weeks, you can hop on um, Apple Podcast and download our podcast and catch up on the last few weeks. Or you can hop on our website and watch online. And so glad that you're here, though. You're worshiping with us today as we finish up the book of Ruth. And if you are new, let me just try to condense um, the book of Ruth down to just a few sentences. Uh, but the title that we have for this series, From Ruin to Redemption, is a really good way to, to boil down the book of Ruth in just a few words. Because uh, the book of Ruth starts with three funerals and a famine, and it ends with a wedding. Um, it really sounds like a really bad Hallmark special, <laughs> three funerals and a wedding. Uh, it's the kind of the, the whole gamut of what's going on in Ruth. It starts with ruin, and it ends with redemption. We're going to see, as we finish chapter 4 today, a lot of hope for a hopeless situation and a lot of God's providence and goodness to move in this situation. So I hope it's an encouragement to your heart and your life as it has been to mine. Now, one of the beautiful things about Ruth, if you can grasp and understand the book of Ruth and this idea of ruin to redemption, what you can actually see is the grand narrative. You can see the entire Bible in the story of Ruth. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the beginning of Ruth and it's ruin. When you read the book of Genesis, you see that God made everything perfect. He made everything very good, it says. And then sin enters into the world, transgress against God, and it ruins God's good and perfect creation. Just ruins it. But then as you read and as you turn the pages of God's word over and over again, we get to the point where we see God redeeming after redeeming after redeeming. So we see the ultimate picture of redemption as Christ dies on the cross for your sins and for my sins. Offering the way of redemption to anyone who would believe. You see, what we find in Ruth from ruin to redemption is really what the entire book of the Bible is about. How God looks at ruined sinners and he brings about beautiful redemption. Now, as we read Ruth chapter 4, it's a long chapter. So what I want to do is we're going to read the first few verses. One pack those, then we'll read the next chunk and then finish up. With the third point kind of hitting the last part of it. So let's read the first six verses of Ruth chapter 4. And this is the word of God. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. So he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men, of the elders of the city, and he said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. All right, let's stop there. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning. You'd help us to praise you as we listen to your word and respond to your word. Lord, may this time this morning, looking through your great world, may it be praise to you, but also profitable to us. Lord, help us to unfold this word well, that we would understand a greater picture of your redeeming work. And as we do this, would you grow in us a deep delight for your word? And as we delight in it, as we listen to it, I pray that we would love it and live it out to the glory of your name. Now let me invite you in just a few moments of silence here to pray something similar, that you would hear God's word and respond to God's word this morning. Would you just pray and ask him to move in your heart this morning? Would you also pray for me as we look at this rich, uh, redeeming work of God in Ruth chapter 4, that I would be able to communicate this clearly? Would you pray for me now? Lord Jesus, you are the great redeemer. So redeem our time today. I ask that you would redeem souls for your glory today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, in Ruth chapter 4, we find three different redeemers in this one chapter. And the first is the one that we just read about in these first six verses, and it's the selfish redeemer. The selfish redeemer. It's fascinating here as it starts. We don't notice it as we read it in English, but if you went, you could look back in the Hebrew, the original language that this was written in. It's fascinating, the language that is chosen as Boaz asks the Redeemer, who has the right to redeem first, will you redeem? In verse 1, he sees the man coming through the gate, and he looks at him, he says, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Now, if you went and you looked up these words, it's difficult for us to translate it, but It's a little irony that's going on there. There's rhyming words that are being used in the Hebrew that we don't pick up in in the English. But if you haven't noticed, he calls him friend in this moment to to give some anonymity to this and to, to talk about him not with a name, but almost a nameless redeemer. And the story even goes out of its way not to give this man a name. Did you notice that? Every time you read, it says, he said to the Redeemer, or the Redeemer responded, or he looks at the man and says, come aside, friend. You don't find this man's name anywhere in here, and it's intentional, and we find that through the the language and the the poetry that's being used here in verse 1. Turn aside, friend. And this language that's being used here, if we could translate it probably a little more literally to our time, contemporize it a little bit, it would be, come aside, friend. Mr. What's-Your-Name, come aside over here. That's what Boaz is doing with this language. Turn aside, Mr. Ah, What's-Your-Face, Ah, can't remember, yeah, come on in here. And never once mentions his name. 
And when he asks Mr. So-and-so or Mr. What's-His-Name to, to come aside, he, he starts to lay out the scenario. He's like, hey, you have the right to be a redeemer. And so he starts saying, this is what you can redeem. He says, this lady, uh, Naomi, has come back for this country. She's selling this parcel of land that belonged to her relative, Elimelech, that's related to you in some form or fashion. And now you have the right to purchase this land. Will you redeem it? Now, to update it again to our language just a little bit more so we can understand what's happening, what Boaz is really saying is, all right, Naomi, she's a widow, and she needs to sell this land in order to raise money to live on. And so she's looking for the next in line to keep this within the family in order to redeem this. Buy this filled up, keep it in the family, and provide money for this widow who is in need, right? That's, that's honestly what's being laid out to this man. When he hears that there's land on the table to purchase, he's like, I'm in. I'll redeem that piece of land. I'll buy it up. The reason why is because land is everything at that time. And honestly, it's everything today, right? They're not making any more of it. And so at this time, land meant money. It meant power. It meant influence. And so all of this, when you buy up the land, speaks so well to this nameless redeemer. This is a good thing. Yeah, I'll buy it up. I'll, I'll invest to have more power and more influence. I'll do all, that things, all those things because land is everything. And then Boaz is going to say, okay, great. You, you want to redeem this land? That's fantastic. With this land, you also get a free, bitter mother-in-law. Comes with the land. Her name's Naomi, but she changed it to Mara bitter because she's bitter by her own profession. And not only do you get a bitter mother-in-law, you get this widow woman, Ruth, who's a Moabite. And he's thinking, Moabite? That's like that crazy, wicked city that's over there that's like sacrificing kids to their idols and doing all these wicked things. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one you're going to have to redeem here. And when he hears all of this, the, the selfish redeemer's like, whoa, time out. Like, nope. I was in for the land because it benefited me and it profited me. Um, but I don't want a bitter mother-in-law. I don't want the Moabite woman. I don't want any of that stuff because that's going to cost me something personally. Uh, I don't want that. And did you see the language that he uses in verse 6? Because this is why I would say he is the selfish redeemer. He's a selfish redeemer. Look back at verse 6. He says... I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. It is all about him. He was in when he could purchase the land that increased his name and his fame. But wait a second, now I've got to serve this lady who's lost everything and I've got to care for this woman who's a widow. I'm out because it doesn't increase me. It only hurts my inheritance. Now, you remember last week, we talked about in order to be a redeemer, you had to have the right legally to do it. You had to be the next in line to be able to, in the family line, to say, okay, I will redeem, buy that property up. But you also had to have the resources to redeem it. You had to have the money in order to say, I will, yes, redeem this. It's going to cost me something, and so, yes, I will redeem it. We also talked about the third thing. You had to have the resolve. To do it. And what we find in this passage, in those few words that we read there, is that this man, the nameless, selfish redeemer, 
He has the right. He's next in line. He has the resources. He's already committed. Yeah, I'll pay. I'll buy up that land. But he doesn't have the resolve when he realizes it's going to cost him something personally. He's like, nope, I don't want it. I don't want it. You see the irony. The irony of all of this is that he's seeking to protect his heritage and his legacy And at the same time, he's missing out on sharing in some of the greatest blessing that he could have ever been a part of. You see, he's so concerned with himself of like, I can't give that up. I don't want to have to do all these things. He's so concerned that it's going to cost him something personally that he looks at this moment and he says, I'm out. And it cost him a place in God's plan of salvation. You see, he wanted his name and his fame to be remembered. And we read God's word, his name isn't even mentioned. He cared about his inheritance and his legacy down the, world, down the road, and he is forgotten. You see, the very thing he thought he was holding on tightly to, he had completely lost. And I fear that we, you and I, are oftentimes just as guilty of miscalculating. You see, he miscalculated being involved in ministries or moments of redemption. The way he had added it up was two plus two has to equal three. That's it. We know. We can see if I give up this, then this is all I'm going to get in response. And he completely cannot see the bigger picture of what's going on. And we, the same way, look at ministries of redemption in our life, and we're like, what is it going to cost me? What is it going to cost me? Will it fulfill me? Will I enjoy it? Is this what I want to do? And we turn inward and selfish instead of thinking of others more than ourselves. That's what happens. You see, he clung to something that he thought he was going to hold on to. And the consequence was that he lost something far, far greater. And it was something that he hadn't even thought of or even dreamed of. (laughs) Like it wasn't even in his mind that redeeming this woman who's a widow and caring for a mother-in-law in need would play a part in the grand narrative of God's redeeming work. Never even crossed his mind. This is just a man looking at a real estate deal and saying, this is good for me, this is not good for me. He has no eternal perspective. And if we're not careful, we will end up the same way. Where we live our daily lives and just be like, oh, this is just something daily. This isn't a big deal. Losing the eternal perspective on what's going on. We'll start to become internal and start to become selfish and live our lives on what is this going to cost me? What do I get out of it? How can I be happy with this? Instead of realizing that God might be doing something far, far more greater than you could even think or dream of. If you would just give even the smallest thing to the Lord. And some of us think the smallest things God can't use or doesn't use or they don't matter. And God uses some of those small things to bring about some of his greatest redeeming work. There's a, a professor at Southeastern Seminary who also went to my church up in Raleigh. And uh, he was a renowned scholar for the, the Gospel of John. 
He wrote like the pinnacle of commentaries on the Gospel of John that are used in seminaries and pastors use it around the world. And I was grabbing lunch with him one day and I was talking to him and I just said, how did you come to know Christ? How did you come to know Jesus? And he had grew up in Europe. Um, he was from Germany and he said, I was just actually on the train one day. I was going into the city and there was a, a girl there that had a, a box that had an instrument in it. I think it was a violin or something like that. And he said, so I just asked her about her violin and she, she started to talk to him about it and said, yeah, I'm actually playing at this concert hall downtown. And they just started talking on the train. And as they continued to talk, this girl shares the redeeming work of Jesus with my friend. Shared the, the gospel with him. And what was funny is in that moment, he remembers believing in Jesus and being saved, even though he doesn't remember her name. He never saw her again. He knows no idea who she is. She said the gospel to him, he believed. He went home. Nobody in his family believed in Jesus. He started going to a church because he's like, I guess I need to go to church because I believe in this Jesus thing. He starts going to church. And God cultivates over years and over time this man who would write a commentary that would impact the world on the gospel of John. This girl has no idea that the man that she shared the gospel with later would impact so many people. Something that she thought, this is just an average train ride for me going into the city, God used in a redeeming work to impact pastors and churches around the world. So may we not think that God doesn't work in the small moments of our lives. And may we not become so selfish and self-centered that we miss out on the blessing that God would have. And to be honest, that girl might not ever realize the blessing that, is, that has happened to God's people because of her faithfulness to share she might not realize it in this life. And some of the faithfulness that you do day in and day out, you might not realize the impact. I mean, something as seemingly small as bringing backpacks for city-served kids, something so small like that could have a massive impact, massive impact on a child's heart and life and a family's heart and life. It's going to cost us something. But the blessing that God would use us is far, far greater far, far greater. So let us not be a selfish person, but a selfless person, which is the second kind of redeemer we find in this passage. We find the selfless redeemer. Let's pick it back up in verse 7. It says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm the transaction, the one would draw off his sandal and give it to the other. And this is a manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I've bought from the hand, bought the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, all that belongs to Kilion, Melion. So Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melion, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead might not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. You're my witnesses this day. You're my witnesses. Now, this moment right here is a little awkward for us. And even says, at this time, the customs were that you would you know, take off your sandal and make it a, a firm deal. It's like your, your signature, your handshake at that time. And I, th I think it's a little intentional with this. If you actually read in the 
the law, God's word, it actually says that the man who says, I refuse to redeem, though he has the right, though he has the resources, he has to take off a sandal and he says, nope, I don't want anything to do with this. And so he gives it to the person who's willing to redeem. That dude is walking around the city without a shoe on the rest of the day. And everybody knows, dude, that guy refused to redeem, right? Highlighting the selfishness. But then you see the selflessness of Boaz. And this is the second redeemer, Boaz here. The, the man gives Boaz the, the sandal and he's like, you, you buy it for yourself. What does that mean? That it's going to cost Boaz something. It's going to cost him. He is going to have to buy and redeem in this moment. This is a, this is a process. This, this is true of all redemption. Any true redemption is going to cost something. And the redeemer, the selfish redeemer knows it. And he looks at Boaz and he's like, all right, I don't want to pay the cost. You pay it. And Boaz responses, yeah, I'll be selfless and I will pay to redeem this. I'll be selfless. You see, he's not ultimately looking out for his own interests. He's looking out for, for a mother-in-law who's without children and a widow who's without husband and they're in need in this moment. Boaz looks and he's like, I will help fix this situation. He's going to know. He's, it's going to take cost. So you see the word buy it, and there's cost there, but then it also shows the heart and the motive behind Boaz in doing this in verse 10. He says, I'm going to do this to perpetuate the name of the dead in this inheritance. Names were everything at this time. Having your name remembered and having your legacy was so, so important in this culture and in this time. And Boaz looks at this moment, and he doesn't say, I'm going to do all of this so you remember my name. So you say, my name, Boaz, over and over and over again. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to redeem and I'm going to work in this way. It's going to cost me something, but I'm going to do it. Why? To perpetuate the name of the dead. So that Kilion and Malion are not forgotten in this place. See, his heart is not let my name and my fame be known, but I'm going to do this in order that these men who have already passed will be remembered in their hometown. This is a selfless act. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be surprised. The whole book of Ruth is just filled with Boaz self-sacrificing and being generous and giving up things over and over and over again. I mean, if you remember back in chapter 2 when Boaz comes on the scene and all this stuff is happening, he looks and he sees this woman who's on welfare. She's eating out of the soup kitchen, right? That's Ruth. So she's gleaning from the edges of the field. And Boaz sees this woman working really hard from morning until nighttime. And he says, you know what? You can continue to glean from the outside part of the field, but you are welcome to come in and to glean anywhere in my field. Now, this cost him financially. This is a financial transaction. And at this point, he has no idea that he's going to eventually marry Ruth. He's not doing this for a relationship at this point because there's a massive gap where nothing happens for almost two months after this moment. He's just loving and serving her and it's costing him something. And then he even looks at her and he says, hey, if you're thirsty, you need something to drink, then go over here where the water cooler is. My men have already taken time and pulled the water out of the well. You just come over here and you drink. That costs something. It costs him something. He's being generous in this moment. His men have taken time to, to pull water out of the well, and that was meant to only be used by employees. And he says to this woman in need, no, you come. I'll give up of my finances and of my, my workers' time in order to serve you, to serve you. And he even protects her. 
He challenges his men, hey, I don't want you just to look over our employees and our field. I want you to watch this girl specifically because she has no family around that's going to protect her if somebody tries to kidnap her or steal from her. And so since she has nothing, I want you to reach out and to care for her and make sure nobody takes advantage of her. He's sacrificing. And we looked last week at the fact that he didn't just protect her physically, he protected her purity. He protected her spiritually by choosing to do the right thing instead of to give in to temptation. He's always protecting her. He's providing for her. In chapter 2, he gives her a to-go bag of food. They share a meal together with all the different employees that are there. And then he's like, hey, here's your to-go bag and take some of this wheat and go and take that back to your mother-in-law. So he doesn't even sacrifice to give her a meal. He says, here's food to take back to your mother-in-law who also needs something to eat. But then, we read last week, he gave even more food to her. This is all a cost to him. This is all selfless living. He gave her 80 pounds of food last week and says, take it back to your family. That's months worth of food to eat. He's doing this because of his selfless heart. He's being selfless to bring about God's redeeming work. He's giving generously time and time and time again. So there should be no surprise when we see it here again at the end of the book that he is sacrificing and being generous to give. He chooses to be selfless. What's amazing to me about this, when it gives that statement, you buy it back, it means that the Redeemer has to pay off the debt that's there. Whatever debt that Naomi has or her family has, the Redeemer comes in and says, I will pay the cost to pay off that debt. Boaz does that. But he doesn't just pay off the debt and he doesn't just buy back the land. When he marries Ruth, he says, now all that I have is yours. He doesn't just say, I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to pay off your debts. I'm going to buy this land so you'll have some money and you can survive. No, I'm going to marry you. And when I marry you, then all that I have is yours. Did Ruth work for any of that? No. She was a Moab. Did Naomi work for any of that? No, she didn't. This is what Boaz had worked and built in his life. And he looks and he's like, I'm going to redeem you from all your debts in the past. And not only am I going to wipe that slate clean, I'm going to give you all that I have as I marry you. As I marry you. I mean, those of you that know the Bible, those of you that know the gospel, you have to read this and be like, ah, I see it. This is great what Boaz does, but there's something much, much greater that's being a picture of here. You see, we look at this and we've got to remember what Christ has done for us. We're in all of our debt and all of our sin. And Jesus looks at us and our debt and our sin and he says, I'm going to pay that for you. I'm going to go to the cross on your behalf and pay that penalty of death that you owe in your place. And not just to save you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you everything that I have. I'm going to invite you not just to be saved and be a heavenly citizen, but I'm going to invite you into my family where you'll be a son or a daughter of the king. I'm not just going to invite you to come and live in a shanty in the city. I want you to come to the palace and eat at the table. You see, what Boaz does in a very small way is an ultimate picture of what Christ has done for us. This is the redeeming work of Christ. Restoring not just our situation, but restoring our life. And so if you profess that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have to reflect the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And so when was the last time that you were selfless for someone else's advantage? 
Seriously, think about it. When was the last time that you sacrificed a dollar to bless someone else? Can you, can you think of one? When's the last time you sacrificed of your time or your schedule to help and to serve someone else? Not to gain something back for yourself, but to just love them and to be selfless in that moment. See, this is what we are called as believers to do. If we're going to follow Christ, we reflect Christ. And he is the great redeemer, the one who gave everything for us so that we could have everything when we had nothing. This is what Christ does. He is the great redeemer. And so, yes, we look and we read this passage and we're like, man, Boaz is a, is a redeemer. Yeah, he's the lowercase hero of the story. The ultimate picture is Christ our Lord, the Redeemer. He is the hero of every story. He is. And so Boaz is great, but Christ is greater, which leads us to the third Redeemer. You had the selfish Redeemer, the unnamed man. You had the selfless Redeemer, Boaz, who pours out of his time and his energy and his finances to serve those in need. But then you also have the eternal Redeemer. The eternal Redeemer. We find this starting in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. It says, Then all the people who were there at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. And they're going to put this kind of blessing on them, this prayer, which is funny. We'll unpack it in a second. But may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then, then Naomi took the child and lay him on her lap and became her nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him the name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, which means worshiper. And he was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hizron. Hizron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, that's King David. Now the reason why I say that this is where we see the eternal Redeemer, most of the time this is the part of our Bible we just kind of flip through and we're just like lineages and names, I have no idea. In our personal times of reading the Bible we're just like, Flip, let's go from Ruth, let's go on over to 1 Samuel, let's pick up there. But what God's word is doing is extremely rich in this moment. It's kind of like the movie uh, Ants. I know it came out years ago. Maybe some of you remember the movie Ants, but in the movie Ants, there's this worker ant, and uh, he's trying to, to reach uh, the heart of the princess, the princess ant. So the whole movie's around this love story of how he's going to, to win the heart of the princess. And the whole thing you're watching, and you see you know, the, the ant colony, and you see grass, and you see all these different things, and uh, 
spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, it's almost 20 years old now, but he ends up winning the heart of the princess. And you're like, oh, that's great. Like he, he, the, the romance story is there and he wins the heart of the princess. But then at the very end of the movie, the very end of the movie, it zooms in from the ant colony and it starts to zoom out and you start to see a big field of grass. Then it zooms out a little bit more and you realize they're in Central Park. Okay. And then it zooms out a little bit more and you realize that you're in New York City. And what the audience is supposed to do in that moment is to realize, wow, there's something much, much bigger going on here. I mean, we were extremely focused on this one love story between this worker ant and this princess ant and how all that's working out. And then as it zooms out, you realize like you're in a massive park and this is just one small moment. And you realize you're like, oh my goodness, you're in a massive city full of hundreds of thousands of people. That's what Ruth chapter 4 is doing here at the end. The whole book has been us zoomed in on this love story of like, oh, here's Boaz, and here's Ruth, and here's the loss of Naomi, and oh, we're looking at that. And at the end of Ruth, it starts to step back and be like, yeah, that love story, here's the marriage, wedding, all that stuff happened. Now take a, a step back. And they have a son. Now let's take a step back. And that son fathered this person. And let's take another further step back. And this person fathered that person. And it moves all the way to this time where it talks about David. It is causing us to step back and realize there's much, much bigger work that's happening. There's a grander redemption that's happening in this moment. So much so that for us, we realize when we get to the New Testament, we get to the book of Matthew, that this exact lineage that is given right here is given again of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. So these names matter. This is important because what this whole section at the end is doing is it's showing us how God and his power and his might had redeeming work in the past. He had redeeming work in the present in the book of Ruth, but he also has a redeeming work that is ahead because our God is an eternal redeemer. You see the, the weird blessing or prayer that the people pray over Boaz and Ruth in verses 11 and 12? They throw some really weird names in there. The question that we should ask is, why those names? I mean, verse 11, it says, oh man, I hope your family is like Rachel and Leah. Those of you who know your Bible, do you know who Rachel and Leah are? There's this guy, Jacob. He's a deceiver. He deceived people his whole life. And then he's deceived in a grander way because he's trying to marry this girl, Rachel. And his father-in-law, through a couple of different ways, uh, deceives him and tricks him, and he ends up marrying Leah instead. He doesn't love Leah. He doesn't want Leah. And so he works even longer to raise up money to make sure everything's ready, and he marries Rachel. God said, don't do that. Don't have multiple wives. He said that in his word multiple times. And Jacob was like, well, I'm a deceiver, so I'm just going to lean into the sin even more. And he's like, I'm just going to uh, go into polygamy. And so he has multiple wives. And so there's tension between Leah and within Rachel. I mean, like this is Jerry Springer stuff, right? That's what's happening in this moment. And they're like, yeah, we hope that the Lord blesses you like Rachel and Leah. Like, what? Time out. Can we change this up and choose a different blessing? Why are you choosing those people? And it says here, who together built up the house of Israel. What does that mean? That God took this broken situation, this deceiver and this broken marriage and all this stuff, and God brought redemption through it. He looked at this moment that was earth shattering for this family, and God's like, I'm going to use that broken family. 
And through that broken family, I'm going to raise up Israel. And I'm going to bless my people through this broken, train-wrecked family. And then the next blessing that they call out for the people is, man, may, may, may Ruth be like Tamar, who bore to, to Judah. Okay? If you know anything about the Bible, again, Tamar... She doesn't trust God to provide for her child in the lineage. So what she does is she dresses up and pretends she's a prostitute. This is in the Bible, okay? I'm not making this up. And then she goes and gets her father-in-law to sleep with her so that she can have a child because she doesn't trust the Lord. Yeah, this is messed up. And you're like, that's in the Bible? Yeah, because the Bible's a real book of broken people who lived in history in a time and a place. And so, yes, you read the Bible and you're going to say, what is that? Yeah, because we realize and we feel the brokenness in our world and all the Bible is doing is showing us our need for redemption. So God, just like in Rachel, Rachel and Leah's situation, he looks at this terrible situation, what Tamar has done, and he says, what you have meant for evil, I will use for good. God's redeeming. He's redeeming. All of this has happened long before Ruth and Boaz ever got on the scene. Because our God is a eternal redeemer. He's an eternal redeemer. He is working to redeem even the worst of situations. And then you fast forward and you got here what's going on with, with Ruth, how it moves from ruin to redemption. And I love what verse, verse 14 says. Don't miss this. Everybody's saying this. He's like, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without the Redeemer. I love that they point the praise in the direction it should go because they see there's an eternal Redeemer that's working. They don't say, man, bless Boaz. Mm, let's bless Boaz because he has redeemed you today. No, they look and they're like, man, I don't know how all this worked out. I don't know how this happened. But we look at this and we realize the Lord has been at work because the Lord is a redeemer. So he's redeeming even in this time. And he redeems in the most unique of ways. You see, it says that Ruth bore a son. She bore a son. Now, if you rewind your mind back to, to Ruth chapter 1, you realize that Ruth was married to a man for 10 years. Ten years, and they didn't have a child. They didn't. And children were important, so it wasn't due to a lack of trying. They, they needed kids for their, their future. And they would have loved to have had kids to help care for Naomi when somebody passes or to care for Ruth. And they didn't have it. So literally for ten years she was married, and she did not have a child. And then we see Boaz redeems her, and God, it says, blesses her with conception. Blesses her with a child. God's even redeeming in that way. Not for Ruth's end or Naomi's end but to a much bigger picture. So yes, God's working in the past. He's working in the present, but there's a future redemption that's happening, a future glory that's coming because it points to what's ahead. And when it starts going through this list of people, we should see a massive transition from where the book has been. You see, the last words in verse 22 speak of, and Jesse fathered David. David was King David, who was described as a man after God's own heart. Now, every week as we've started, you've watched this video that has Ruth 1-1 on it in the times of the judges. And you remember the times of the judges were terrible times. Everybody lived selfishly. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Nobody wanted to sacrifice for others. Nobody wanted to do that. And that's where Ruth starts, 1-1. Everybody just does whatever they want to in their own eyes. There's no king, there's no ruler, there's no moral code that's leading them forward. And then it finishes in verse 22 of chapter 4, and Jesse fathered David, a man after God's own heart. 
You see the change that's happened? They had no king, now they have a king. And this king is a king who leads them in worship. A king that points them to the real and true and greater redeemer. There's a massive shift that's happening in here that the people this time had to have seen. Yes, there's an eternal redeemer working. And then we get the blessing of seeing this lineage fulfilled and lived out as it moves to Christ in Matthew chapter 1. This exact quote of these verses are in Matthew chapter 1. And it's showing us that this lineage ultimately led to the greatest redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you look at that lineage, apart from Jesus, that lineage is a hot mess. It is just difficult situation after broken situation, after sinful situation, after deceitful situation, over and over and over again. I mean, we've already talked about it. Tamar, her story, yeah, she's a part of the lineage of Christ. She dressed up as a prostitute, but there's another person's name in the lineage of Christ, Rahab. She didn't just dress up as one, she was one. She's in the lineage of Christ. Then you see Ruth's name. Ruth is in the lineage of Christ. This this is a girl that came from Moab, a, a city and a town that was wicked and wretched and far from God. And she's included in the lineage of Christ. Another lady that's mentioned there is Bathsheba. And we see as, as much as David was after God's own heart, he fell into temptation at times. He seduces Bathsheba and murders her husband. I mean, terrible stuff. And you're like, this is what the lineage of Christ looks like? Yes. You'd be like, well, God, why didn't you choose like cleaner, more sanitized people to put in your lineage? Why? Why all of these broken people? Because this is showing that our God is an eternal redeemer. He loves to, to work in the brokenness of our lives and this world to bring about redemption. You read the lineage and you see it is a mess, but the maker transforms it and redeems it to something beautiful. This is what Jesus does. You see, we can look at this lineage and we can look at Matthew 1 and see the lineage and say, why are all these broken sinners a part of Christ's family tree? And the answer is that they're a part of Christ's family for the very same reason that you and I can be a part of Christ's family. It's because there was a great mercy that moved. There was a great redeemer that reached out. You see, we, just like them, were destitute in our sin, without hope. And Jesus pursued us. Jesus left his glory to pursue us in redemption. And so may we never look at our lives and say, God can't redeem or save me. May we not look at our lives and say, God can't do anything with us. If God can redeem these train-wrecked lives in this lineage, he can redeem us. If God can redeem people just like this and use them to change the world, he can use us in the same way. And some of us think, Ryan, I didn't grow up in church though. I don't know all of these things, so he can't use me. That's a lie. You don't have to grow up into the church in order to be used by the Redeemer. Some of you think, I've made choices in my life and I've wrecked my life. There's no way that that God can redeem me or use me. Man, who are you to look at the almighty God and say, he could never use me. He could never use me. 
Some of us struggle with sin week in and week out, and we think because I battle and I struggle with sin that he cannot use me nor redeem me. When we look at the lineage, these are the very people that God is using in a part of his grand redemptive plan. So may we look to the Redeemer with hope and trust, knowing he's redeemed in the past, he's redeeming the present, he's redeemed in the future. He knows every single sin you have ever committed, the ones you're thinking about right now that you're going to do, and the ones that you will do. And he says, I will still use you. If you will turn and repent, I can use you. Because he's the redeeming God. So do you know that loving Redeemer? Do you know Jesus Christ? And if you do know Jesus Christ then would you praise him with all of your life because he is worthy of your life. And for those of us that don't know Christ, would you look to him today knowing that the almighty redeemer can redeem any situation that's going on in your life for his glory and for our good. And the way that I know that and the way that you should know that is because we look to the cross and we see the price that Christ paid to bring about redemption for us. The life that he gave, he gave it all for us. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, this is our reminder. This is our proclamation that Christ is our great Redeemer. And so if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then I invite you, God's Word invites you to to take the Lord's Supper, remembering the work of the Redeemer, the price that he paid in order to forgive you of your sins, to remove your debt, to bring you back into relationship with him. And so we as believers, we take this, and this is a moment of proclamation. We believe this. This is a moment of praise. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your body and your your blood for us. But this is also a chance for you if you're never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never seen him as your redeemer. This is a moment that you can pause and say, I want you to redeem me. I want you to be my Lord. I want to admit that I cannot save myself, that I need your redeeming work in my life. And if you pray and you confess your sins, know that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He'll redeem you. He'll save you. So I want to give us a moment now, those of us who are believers, to confess our sins knowing that because of his body and his blood, we have an assurance we're forgiven. We have an assurance of pardon. And so we confess our sins. God's word calls us in this moment to remember, confess, and repent. But others of us that have never trusted in Christ, I want you to use this moment of silence to pray, confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Redeemer, and know that he will save you. So let me start us in prayer, and then I'll give you a moment to pray as well. Christ, you are our great Redeemer. And we want to come before you now not trying to hide our sins or cover them up. Lord, you know them all. You died for them, and so we confess them to you now. God, forgive us for our eyes looking on things that they ought not look, that our eyes have focused on worthless things. We've loved vain things more than you, our great Redeemer. So forgive us of what our eyes have lusted after and longed for more than you. Lord, forgive us for what our ears have have listened to, either as a form of entertainment when they are words that are 
I'm pure. God, would you forgive us for what we may have listened to this last week or this last month that wasn't pleasing to you? Lord, forgive us for what our mouths have spoken, what we've said that was not pleasing to you. God, your word says in Titus, speak evil of no one. So we confess now that some, if not many of us, have slandered others, have gossiped, have used our words to create division instead of unity. God, forgive us of those sins and wash us from those things. We also pray, God, that you would forgive us for where our feet have led us, where we have walked away from your will and your word, and we have walked in our ways and have rejected your word. God, forgive us. Forgive us of those things. And I pray as we confess our sins, we would remember your beautiful work on the cross where you promised to forgive us if we would confess our sins. And so hear our prayers now as we look to you, our Redeemer.